0: Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. It is 7.15 on a Friday night. I wanted to get the podcast episode done tonight because tomorrow morning I'm heading off to London for the weekend. I thought this is a perfect way. I've just had a little glass of cider, unwind on a Friday evening. And there's no better way than reading through your messages and going through a full podcast episode. I think it's a fantastic way to end the week. So let's get going. I hope you've all had a brilliant week. I hope you've got some nice plans for the weekend. And I'm going to begin with an email that I had, I think just a few hours ago, but I had to put it right to the top because it's a really pertinent, relevant question that I don't know if I've had before. And it will be, or it will touch a base with a lot of you. Have a listen to this from Lee. Hello, Freddie. Just wondering if I could pick your brains on a current issue. I know a lot of people in the UK will be dealing with at the moment. Train strikes are playing havoc with me getting to work in central London from Hampshire, and they seem to be happening more and more often. I need to get to the office every day. So I've been looking at getting a suitable bike for the job. This would involve motorway and inner city riding. Now, my train season ticket is four and a half thousand pounds, so if I don't renew it in February, this would be my budget for a bike to travel to work and back on. My thinking is I don't need a big bike, as there are so many speed cameras. Just something that can make ground when I need to, and will allow me into London with regards to the ULEZ zone. I'm fussy, and I'm not into the looks of adventure bikes, but was thinking about the Scram Four One One with a screen added for a bit of extra protection. Ideally, something with a few modern creature comforts such as ABS would be brilliant. Any suggestions would be amazing. Kind regards, Lee. Lee, this is amazing. When I read that, I was just nodding along to you because I remember when I had my, uh, my first office job in London, I thought, God, I don't like the idea of getting on a a train every day. In fact, that's a lie. I did it for one week, getting on a train from Kingston in Southwest London into Hammersmith. And on my first day, I am not joking, I had to wait for three separate trains just to get on uh, one of the, the changing stations because there were about eight people deep. And I thought, I cannot do this every day. I cannot have the stress of commuting and having to push through people every day just to get to work. By the time I was at work, I was a nervous wreck. And as you very rightly mentioned, Lee, and for any non-Brits here who don't know, everything is a complete mess at the moment. Strikes going on all over the place, whether it's the NHS or train drivers or the postal service, everyone's striking. I'm going into London tomorrow, and of course there are no trains, so I'm having to drive into London. And there'll be a lot of people in this situation. And just like Lee, there'll be a lot of people paying a lot of money. Four and a half thousand pounds for a season ticket where some of the days there won't even be any trains running because there'll be strikes. So what do you do in this situation? Well, it's incredibly tempting to look at motorbikes because four and a half thousand pounds is a seriously good budget for a motorbike. So just not paying for that season ticket means you can buy a motorbike. It's as simple as that. Instead of going to the train station and buying a season ticket for four and a half thousand pounds where you don't have any, anything physical, there's nothing exciting there at all. You're not gonna be losing sleep. Oh my gosh, my season ticket, I can buy it tomorrow. No, there's no excitement there. But buying a motorbike for the exact same money, well, that blows my mind that it's so expensive to get a train ticket and you can just go out there and get a dream bike. Okay, I'm waffling. Lee has said he's looking at the Scram 411 and Lee, I think that is is an extremely good option. In fact, I don't know specifically if I could better it. That really is a very, very good idea. If I have a look here, let's check out the prices. Royal Enfield Scram 411. £4,599, brand new. I'd almost forgotten how good value that is actually. If I go here, let me just see. You've got the Scram 411 at £4,500. Well, that's an excellent choice. One of the big reasons, Lee, I like this is because it's actually quite high, meaning that you're going to be able to see over a lot of the roofs of different cars. Something else I'd get in there, don't discount a used Royal Enfield Interceptor, 650cc engine. It's it's a more grunty, meaty engine. Not that you specifically need it for your requirements, but that's a lovely bike as well to consider and beautiful for going out trips at the weekend and thing like, things like that. And you can get that for four and a half grand now. Auto trader, Facebook, maybe even 4,200, 4,100 pounds. On the other hand, again, another Royal Enfield, check out the classic 350. I think new there around about the 4,000 pound mark. So you may well save three to 500 pounds getting the classic 350. And actually for me, even though it's a smaller engine, the classic 350 has the better engine than the Scram 411. It feels like a tougher engine. And actually I think it feels more pleasant at motorway speeds up to, let's say, 70 miles an hour. I prefer the feel of the Classic 350 to the Scram 411, but I am not going to deny it. I love that Scram 411 for its versatility. On road, off road, chuck it around the place, just grab it by the scruff of the neck. I always, oh, it's, it's hard to look past that, but the Classic 350 for a very different riding experience that will happily be able to do the job, very good too. The only thing is you say you're commuting into central London, the Scram 4, the the classic 350, it would probably need a bit more polishing. Whereas the Scram 411 is the kind of bike that it looks good, rough and ready. So I would still probably do the Scram 411 over that. I've got two more though for you here, Lee. How about the Kawasaki W800? So bear with me here. I'm looking at one right now. 2013 model so it's going to have fuel injection it's going to have modern reliability bear in mind you can get these cheaper un- way under 4k you know you can get these for 3000 pounds i'm even looking at one for 3000 pounds from 2011 but let's just have a look at this one from 2013 just with 7000 miles on the clock it's 47 horsepower it's Japanese, so it's never going to go wrong at all. In fact, the one I'm looking at even has a top box, although that doesn't look great. But bear this in mind, this was always the underappreciated Japanese brother of the Bonneville. Every bit as good looking, very possibly more reliable, and you can get them for under 4,000 pounds. I'll just say one more time, 3,000 pounds here for a 2011 model, from a dealership, 14,000 miles on the clock, three owners, full service history. 3,000 pounds. That means, Lee, you'll you'll be able to save one and a half thousand pounds on your annual train ticket. One final one, Fantic Caballero Scrambler. Now, you said you were looking at the Royal Enfield Scram 411. Well, how about looking at Fantic's rival, the rival from Fantic of the Scram 411. Let me see how much they cost used because new, they're quite a bit more than the Scram 411, but I'll be honest, i probably prefer the Scram 411, but you can get a 500cc model. Let's see what we can get one of these for you. Fantic Caballero, they do it in a 125, but you're going to need the 500 at least. Okay, let's put 500. Here we go, we've got one. 2019 model Fantic Caballero, scrambler, 4,300 pounds. 13,000 miles on the clock. That would do the good job. Well, that would do a good job for you, Lee, as well. Definitely check that out. If I had to pick, I must get off the fence and I must pick. Okay, it would be the, the Scram411 or the Kawasaki W800, one of those two. Let me know what you go for, Lee. Happy shopping. Right, I move on. So sorry, I haven't saved your name, but... Hi, Freddie. For your podcast tonight, you should check out some PCP deals Triumph have. You could own a Bobber or T120 for as little as £140 a month. Hmm. Then at the end, swap it out for another brand new bike. Okay. Well, let's have a look at this. Triumph Motorcycles PCP. I do like looking at these. And the reason I like looking at these is because it's incredibly polarizing any type of finance polarising. I've been ripped to pieces before giving my recommendations um, for financing and getting loans and things like that. But it's a fun subject because PCP will allow us to go out and buy our dream motorcycle. So what does Triumph have at the moment? Let's have a look. So if I go to classic motorcycles, for example, and... I will click on let's say the oh no let's say the T120. Go to configure now that's opening up and if I just go for let's go for the black so the T120 black is eleven thousand seven hundred and ninety five pounds. Click on next so I've got it all the way I want it. How easy will Triumph make this for me? So and click on calculate finance. Okay, it's easy so far, finance calculator. Okay, finance product, PCP, duration of agreement, 37 months, on the road price, £11,795. Customer deposit, £2,359. Balance to finance, 9,436. Okay, payable in total, payable in total, 14,132 pounds with 36 monthly payments of 147 pounds. And here it is, here it is, the optional final payment. So what we've got here in essence, have a listen to this so I can break it down. We've got a motorcycle that's worth £11,795. We have then paid a deposit of £2,359. Then for three years, we're paying £147 every month. At the end of that three-year term, we can then pay the remaining balance of £6,477, to purchase the bike and we own it in its entirety, or you don't pay that optional final payment. You give the bike back, but then you can, to the best of my knowledge, I'm checking here, swap it for a different bike after that. These are getting extremely popular because what it means in essence is that for a relatively small deposit of £2,300 I can go to my Triumph dealer tomorrow and buy my dream motorbike, a T120. I've then got relatively small payments of £147 and I think, and I'm talking personally from my own point of view, I could afford that and it wouldn't be completely unpleasant at the end of every month, knowing I have to pay that £147. So that all works out brilliantly. I think that's okay. The interesting bit will come in three years time. The final payment of £6,000, I guess you'd take a loan out for that or give it back. I quite like to keep my bikes, so I'd probably take a loan out, or hopefully maybe I've saved up enough by that time i do sometimes consider those it's it's good that you sent that over appreciate appreciate the heads up on that because you know 147 a month it's quite interesting thank you i'll move on um let me know i'll be curious to know anyone out there absolutely love and swear by buying your bikes and finance are there some people out there who actually think it's quite ridiculous actually makes no financial sense to buy a bike for cash outright because maybe your money is better spent in other areas rather than spending a huge chunk on a motorbike. I'll be curious on your thoughts on that. I'm moving on. This is, oh, this is Nick, Moto UK. This is kind of leading on from what I've just been speaking about. I found this fascinating. And Nick did a YouTube video on this. You can check out Moto UK. Um, I watched it with a great amount of interest, this video on YouTube, um, where he breaks down not just the cost of buying a bike, but all the things that you don't expect, the incidentals, the add-ons, the bits that you put on your bike to make it yours, to personalize it. A lot of the time, and I'm guilty of this, you buy a bike and you think, well, that's it, I'm done. But then if you want to customize it, really make it your own, it can get scary. Have a listen to this. Freddie, got me thinking, are you people buying new bikes? And what does a new bike actually cost in the end compared to the price you pay rolling it out of the showroom? Having bought my last two bikes new, I always accessorize them to get them to a level where it's my bike with all the accessories I want uh, I want on it. Uh, it, may, uh, it may be with regards to looks or gadgets uh, to aid riding. Take the Bonneville T120 I just bought. I've now just ordered some last bits a centre stand, rear luggage, bar and mirrors, etc. When I add them all up, it's now at £1,700 in Triumph Genuine Accessories. Add the Motone Radguard and Sump Plate, that's another £308, and we're up to £2,008. Now, when I throw in a carcoon, a ground anchor, new bike chain, well, now we're at £2,468 spent on accessories. And I've not yet bought the SW Motec Legend Panniers at £487. I remember spending similar on my Yamaha MT-10SP when I bought it. So the real price of buying that new bike and the sometimes downside is accessorising it. Compared to buying second hand, where you may already get a lot of accessories the previous owner has left on the bike, the price of second hand accessory parts on eBay is very tempting though when selling a second hand bike, with many taking off all of the accessories they added to their bike and selling them separately. This is an extremely interesting point because that is a total. Take it all into account with the panniers, it's 3,000 pounds that Nick will be spending on his bike. And when you look online and you often, you're looking for a specific, specific model of bike, let's say you're looking at a T120 because that's what Nick's got. You can often see them, and I know because I look at these bikes, you can often see them completely stripped back with nothing. But you can also very commonly see them with the full touring pack. The pannier rails, the panniers, uh, sometimes a screen, sometimes crash bars. And often I will just brush past it and think, oh, no, there's a cheaper one there. It may not have anything on it, but it's cheaper. But then you realise the cost of it. I think even the pannier rails from Triumph are about £200, let alone the actual panniers themselves, probably about £500. Buying used in this respect, you can save thousands of pounds. Yes, you're buying someone else's ex pride and joy. So it's not quite as magical as specking your own pride and joy from new. but the amount that you can save, you may have to be a bit flexible because you may not want X or Y a screen or something else like that. But if you can just be a bit flexible, if you go out and buy a fully kitted out bike, it's huge, huge money you can save. And 3,000 pounds, that is very close in the the spending next done. It's pretty much a Royal Enfield. I'm sure it's just about the cost of a Royal Enfield Hunter. It's certainly the cost of many good used motorcycles. The cost is eye-watering, you know, it's, I often say it, it's quite normal now. T120 is about 12 grand. It's quite normal for bikes to be 12K. And then you add on the accessories, you can easily spend, it's, it is not unusual to be spending 16 or so K on motorcycles. Now it's really not unusual, which makes the likes of Royal Enfield coming in about 6K, four to 6K seem just exceptional value, really exceptional. In that respect, I guess, bike's almost turning into cars a bit. There are so many different options lists. Harley Davidson really made this their own with the options. And and it's a a good thing for the industry. I'm a huge fan of it, but it's an easy way to spend a lot of money. Nick, thank you so much for that. I move on to Rob. Freddie, one point I'd like to make is this. Yes, in Asia. uh, Ah, yes, this is interesting. This is about safety and my sometimes poor attitude with it. Let me read this out. Freddie, one point, in fact, sorry, I've just missed the top sentence. Freddie, the matter of whether or not to kit up comes up often. One point I'd like to make is this. Yes, in Asian lands, there is a lax attitude towards protective gear, mostly down to cost, I assume. The fact is, though, these lands have an atrocious record of road safety and a great many are seriously injured or die each year as a result. How many would still be here if they'd worn good gear. Also, the small bikes they tend to ride are obviously quite capable of causing injury. For example, in 1976, when I was 16 and riding home on my beloved Yamaha FS1E 50cc moped. I love it. I love it. I had a spill resulting in a broken jaw, broken collarbone, three ribs and and most of my teeth smashed out. <sighs> yeah small bikes and low speeds can still hurt exclamation exclamation from rob thank you for highlighting that rob you are absolutely right you know we're planning on going out to monoconai to to southeast asia maybe in about a month and a half or so we usually go out to bali and we may even go to goa actually this time in india definitely bali though and I often you know, watch on Instagram and things like that, see how it's looking, how busy places are getting. And it's very, very normal in areas of Bali, specifically an area called Canggu, a real surfer area, an area for expats. God, most people, it looks like, don't don't even wear helmets. Uh, we wear a helmet when we go out there, Monica and I, but I'll be completely honest, it's... T-shirt, flip-flops, and an open-face helmet that I'm sure must have been dropped so many times it's probably no better than wearing a cabbage on your head. But but no helmet wearing is not uncommon. In fact, actually, I remember going to the islands of Indonesia, you jump off, you're, you're on a boat, and you're going to this tiny little island. You get off the boat, and once you get off beautiful white sandy beach, turquoise water, and there'll just be a few locals just just parked up next to mopeds, and I'll say, "Do you need a moped for a few days?" and And we jump off, you know you have to actually walk through the water to get to the beach. It's that kind of boat, and these these islands just feel like they're on the edge of the earth, and you say, "Oh, yes, please, I'd love a moped to explore the island because that's the only way to get around. you have to get a moped." and they, they say, you, you negotiate a price, let's say it's three pounds a day, you say, great, I'll take it for four days. And then they chuck you the keys after you've given them the money. And then I, I remember saying, what do I have a helmet? Is there any paperwork? Where do you want the bike? And I'm like, oh no, just leave it here when you're done with it, nothing. So you're riding around on a Honda that hasn't been serviced in about 12 years with no helmet at all, going around in a vest and i can see you know i remember seeing a a good four decently serious injuries of bikers in indonesia never wearing gear Uh, and i also remember seeing quite a few expats with just heavily bandaged up legs you know they'd clearly got into a scrape never ridden before and yeah, got into a scrape and just skin ripped off legs. God, it was it's a common sight. You're right, Rob, you are right. And in a way, we are lucky in Europe or in a lot of other countries that, you know, we have these slightly stricter rules on safety because it can be bedlam. It can be bedlam. And you're right, it's a good thing to highlight. Small bikes can also be extremely dangerous. You can also on 125s, sure you can go 60 miles an hour on them. I'm sure you can, if I remember correctly. So that's a very fair point you make, Rob. Thank you for that. I continue. Freddie, you said that, ah, Freddie, you said that you'd never heard of Lifetime Warranty and I hadn't either. I bought the Ninja 650 from a company called Wheels in Peterborough. They are a very friendly and knowledgeable group, but also offer this Lifetime Warranty. The Lifetime Warranty looks like this. Wheels Motorcycles. Offer a lifetime guarantee on all new and used motorcycles over 250cc purchased from ourselves with less than 30,000 miles or younger than 10 years at the time of purchase for all Kawasaki, Suzuki, Aprilia, Moto Guzzi and Yamaha models for as long as you keep it. This was one of the persuading factors in the purchase. I hope that clears that one up for you. Many thanks, Sean. You know, Sean, I had to read this a couple of times. It's absolutely fascinating. So, and tell me if I'm wrong, and I'll read it out in next week's podcast. You buy a bike from Wheels Motorcycles, under 30,000 miles and under 10 years old, and for no extra cost, you have a lifetime warranty. So if anything untoward that's not standard wear and tear goes wrong, with those bikes they will be repaired for you for no cost at all for as long as the bike is in your ownership and that's absolutely incredible i've never heard anything like it it's brilliant right i will move on dear freddy i own a continental gt 650 the one with the chrome tank and i absolutely love it it may have only 47 horsepower but it goes plenty fast enough for me and the way i like to ride Further, it's got the looks of either the vintage cafe racer that I would never be able to afford. Think vintage, Triumph, Norton, BSA, Triton, etc. Or the modern cafe racer. I'd rather not bother with, uh, think, hatched up 70s UJM like maybe a Honda CB750. I'm not terribly mechanically minded and I live in a condo, a flat where I don't really have a place to do a lot of retching or wrenching on a bike. So the Royal Enfield ticks all of the boxes for me. Cool looks, plenty of performance for my taste, reliability, and I can wear my cool, at least I think, cafe racer rocker gear. Oh yeah, and affordability and value for money. To me... Riding a motorcycle is about the enjoyment of getting out on a cool looking bike and enjoying the ride, and admittedly trying to look cool myself while doing it. I might add that pretty much every time I go out for a ride, whether it's just pootling around downtown San Diego or commuting to work, I get at least one comment and compliment from random strangers. I like the Continental so much that I'm strongly considering buying a classic 350 in a matching chrome-based color scheme, of course. I could go on and on, but I'm keeping this short. Ultimately, I believe Royal Enfield has just knocked it out the park with their somewhat back-to-basics approach to motorcycles. Cheers and ride safe, Joe. You know, Joe, just the thought of that, San Diego and uh, Royal Enfield Continental. It's a lovely mental image. I can also imagine how amazing that would look, a chrome, continental next to a chrome classic 350 these bikes these royal enfields i'm completely certain they will go down i really believe it as all-time classic bikes and you just have to look i know i've said it before but you just have to look at the royal enfield bullets you know these are bikes that were dirt cheap dirt cheap atrocious bikes really if you're looking at from Anything that you measure a bike being, dynamism, performance, reliability, build quality, the bullets are atrocious. Yet they are going up in value rapidly here now in the UK because it just shows that what people want a lot of the time is a bit of character. I'm sure these bikes cannot have been any more than 3,000 pounds, let's say back in 2010. But I'm looking at 2010 bullets now, that are up to about four thousand pounds. That are now more expensive, some ten years on or so, than they were when when they were brand new. It's it's incredible what's going on. And you're right, Joe. What Royal Enfield have done? They have knocked it out of the park, and they have changed the game with regards to motorcycling. I'll try and not go on about it too much because uh, I I. I often sound like a Royal Enfield salesman, but what they've done for biking, to a large extent, they've brought back so much of that soul, that simple character that largely has been missing. You see, this is what happens when I, when I get going about Royal Enfield, but they brought back the character, the cool vibes that's been missing possibly for decades. Yes, we've got Triumph. Yes, we've got Harley Davidson. They're off the scale, cool bikes. They look brilliant. But Royal Enfield has brought something totally different. It's brought cool biking to the masses. It's it's brought back exactly what biking used to be. Incredible value, cool transportation that we can all dream of owning. I thank Royal Enfield for that, I really do. I move on, Freddie. Uh, JB Scotland. Uh, Freddie just fitted Yokohama all season tires to uh, to the Ford Kona. They are so good, well worth a try on the Fiat 500. It turns it into a mini Land Rover. I have to say, JB, I read this and I wanted to read this out on the podcast because my parents are about to go skiing. They always buy a, a set of winter tires and I just found it interesting how, how these all season tires are now really picking up in, in popularity. So what usually happens, my, my dad, will change the tires from summer to winter tires. Not because we get cold winters in England, we don't, but because he likes to go skiing, ideally once a year and he likes driving there. So he will go and switch up his tires. I think he goes to a quick fit, you know, a specialist tire shop, or he may even go to BMW, I can't remember. But he has to own two sets of tires and tires on BMWs are really expensive and tyre storage is a thing. I wouldn't have realised this until a few years ago, my my dad was telling me, tyre storage is a thing. You take the summer tyres off, let's say in November or December, you go to your tyre service centre, they take off your summer tyres, they put on your winter tyres, they then store your summer tyres, because how else are you going to get four tyres in the boot of your car? So your summer tires will be stored at a cost by the tire outlet. It's effectively like paying rent to, to be able to store them. And it's a big cost. So when I was with Michelin at the Valencia Motor GP, I was talking to them about this because I think winter tires are a legal requirement. You must have them if you're in Germany. Same with Lithuania, it's a legal requirement. You will get fined if you don't have winter tires. So I was saying to the team at Michelin, God, it must be expensive, always having to change your tyres once a year. And every single one of them universally said, no, 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 we don't use winter tyres now, we use all-season tyres. They all use all-season tyres, so they're not changing them once a year. I think this is the new thing. I wonder if the winter tyres, unless you're real hardcore driving uh you, you know advocate who really feels you must have the winter tires i think for 99.9 percent of people these all-season ones are the way to go and it will save a huge amount of money uh, carrying on with jb freddy's still mulling over a new bike oh this is interesting what do you think about the scrambler 1200 xc for touring and light green laning versus the motoguzzi v85 tt Okay, I like this because after doing the the YouTube video with the KTM, the big KTM, a lot of people said to me, Freddie, do you think the Moto Guzzi V85 TT may actually be the happy medium? It It may be the best mix of style, size, character and do it all ability. Well, let's have a look. Let's have a look at what I can get a V85 TT for, because motor goodsies are a little bit hit and miss. They can sometimes drop down in value very quickly. And is the same true of the V85. So I'm just keeping it as simple as possible. Auto trader bikes, you can get a V85 TT, take your pick from a dealer, three years old, seven and a half thousand pounds. Seven and a half grand, it's good value really good value and let's see compared to the Triumph now I've ridden both of these bikes the 1200 Triumph is a more impressive bike it is but 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 will that translate into cost so Triumph Scrambler 1200 will it be a lot more money even used I say it's a a more impressive bike. It is because of performance figures. However, that high exhaust on the Scrambler, this is always my problem, JB, with the high exhaust on the Scrambler. People often describe the, the big 1200 Tramp Scrambler as a naked adventure bike, and I do understand why. But that high exhaust, for me, is an issue when calling it an adventure bike because it means I can't get a pannier on the right-hand side. So I can only have one pannier on the bike. And if you're loading up that left-hand pannier, two things, you've only got half the luggage space. And secondly, the bike will be slightly unstable potentially because all of the weights on the left-hand side Uh, And I'm not sure. I I see the 1200 Scrambler as a Scrambler full stop. I don't see it as a naked adventure bike, actually. They're also very, very tall. And I remember trying that Scrambler from Triumph and it had the road-biased tyres on. It was worse than my Bonneville off-roading. It made me understand very, very clearly the importance of good tyres. An off-road bike, let's say the Scrambler 1200, this is the thing I learned when I borrowed it everything comes down to tires yes the scrambler may have good ground clearance but if it's on road tires it will be no better off-roading anywhere than a sports bike i know that sounds ridiculous but apart from the the raised ground clearance that scrambler will not be able to get anywhere else than a sports bike unless it's on the right tires put the right tires on it And it will be an animal. It will be incredible off-road. But wow, I remember trying it on road tyres. I couldn't get up about a five degree gradient on a muddy slope. Okay, the 9K. I'm looking at them now. I found one for £8,900. Three-year-old Scrambler 1200 XC. I do remember riding it vividly. And it's a seriously impressive machine, that Scrambler 1200 XC. What do you go for? The -the off-the-scale cool vibes of the Scrambler 1200 XC or the Italian charm and class of the V85 TT. Two very, very different bikes. Oh, it's a tough one. I'm looking at the Scrambler now. I remember how much I like that bike. Oh, but then you've got the V85 TT and that's pure art. JB, I cannot call it. I cannot call it. You need to pay an extra grand and a half for a used Triumph, but it's without question an extra grand and a half worth of bike. But there's something very charming about that motor good. See, that's a, a really special bike. Let me know what you go for. That's, that's a connoisseur's choice of two bikes there. And I have to read this out, JB. You're entering your VMAX for the Bike Shed show and Kickback Manchester next year. Next year, I hope you mean 2023. Well, I will be there and I will see you there. Moving on. Oh, one more from, from uh, JB. Continuing with the Hornet, why isn't Honda bringing the Hawk to the UK? See, I, I had a look at this, JB, about, apologies if I sound like I'm bunged up, that's because, I don't know, I've just suddenly got a semi-allergic reaction to something in the room here, and My eyes have started watering, and I've become completely bunged up, but if I don't have a tissue within hand distance, I don't want to stop when I'm on a roll with the podcast, so apologies. I've got an article here JB sent from Visor Down. Why is Honda not bringing the new Hawk to Britain? The Hawk 11, this is a lovely looking bike. I mentioned it a month or two ago. Honda seem to think that we don't want these kinds of bikes in Europe. You've got the Hawk and you've also got the CB300 or CB350 that will be a direct competitor to a lot of the Royal Enfields. And it's a huge shame because Honda make brilliant bikes and they've also got a beautiful amount of history and heritage to go with it. They've had some of the coolest, most characterful bikes full stop. I'm just delighted now that in the UK, we've got the Honda Cub, we've got the Honda Monkey Bike, and we've even got the Honda Dax coming back. And I'd love to see some of the bigger ones um, coming back or this new Hawk coming out because it's just a really stylish looking cafe racer. I always say it's a shame that Honda dropped the CB 1100 from from European markets because that's a stunningly good bike. I don't know why it didn't sell because it's got everything needed. It's a bit like the Kawasaki w800 I think they're stopping or have now stopped selling that. In fact, I'm certain they've stopped selling that in definitely in the UK, I think in Europe. The Kawasaki W800, that's got everything needed to be a huge sales success, surely, but it wasn't. Why? Was the marketing just not good enough? You know, not many people do marketing like Royal Enfield. Did they just not portray to potential audiences the cool nature of that honda and that kawasaki kawasaki's a lot of the time look like spaceships does the marketing department know how to market a modern classic bike well enough possibly not for royal enfield for harley davidson marketing off the scale, cool, beautiful retro style bikes is their bread and butter. They know what they're doing. They know how to appeal to the exact audience. They know how to sell the dream of lifestyle. Maybe, maybe Honda and Kawasaki don't quite know how to sell the modern classic, the retro motorcycling lifestyle dream. the only thing I can think of because they've, they've just got bikes as good as, if not better than anyone. The Hawk. I mean, that would be a shame not to get that. definitely a very unique looking bike. Right, I move on. Oh, I'm on to the last one. Freddy. Oh, okay, this is from Rob. Freddy, once again, Harley comes out on top based on this survey result. I'm a bit biased. I'm a bit biased. What am I reading? I'm a bit surprised. Royal Enfield was low on the list. However, I'll attribute that to their smaller US brand awareness. Given time and sticking to their simplicity is the best model. I believe they will eclipse even triumph. Honda is clearly the Toyota of motorcycles over here, i.e. the US, for their patented quality and reliability, yet lack that soul. Over time, riders will tire of today's bloated, tech laden and stratospherically overpriced plastic clad machines. That's not what we purists desire, which is the freedom and beauty of that perfect summer morning ride. Almost 50% of people say this brand makes the most reliable motorcycles. And that's a quote, sorry, that last sentence. This is from the article. Almost fifty percent of people say this brand makes the most reliable motorcycles. Let me open it up in Apple News. And Don't die on me now, Apple News. There we go. Sorry, excuse me. A motor okay, motorcycles come in. <gasps> I've just seen it. Motorcycles come in all shapes and sizes, yada, 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 yada. Which brand, this is for the US everyone, bear in mind, this is US. Which brand makes the most reliable motorcycles? We asked 605 people located in the United States for their thoughts on the matter. And unlike in some of our past surveys that had far more polarized results, Nearly 50% of respondents agreed that a single motorcycle company offers the most reliable bikes. The winner is surprising. However, as real world experiences don't match perception when it comes to how reliable these motorcycles actually are. Who did the Americans vote or which company did the Americans vote as the most reliable motorcycle brand? Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson has skyrocketed to the top of the list. It's absolutely fascinating. Harley-Davidson scored 50% of all of the votes. 50% to put that in some context. Kawasaki got 11% of the votes. Ducati 14%. Yamaha 14%. Uh, Royal Enfield 2%. Triumph with 8%. Fascinating, Harley Davidson. I tell you what, I'm curious about. Let's just see if I get any uh, any interesting insight from this Harley Davidson owners. I would be fascinated to know just two things: your your biggest ever repair bill for Harley Davidson, your your biggest single ever repair bill, and are there any people out there listening? who own a very high mileage Harley-Davidson because I don't see too many of them in the UK, but the US is very, very different. Any of your stories, send them in. I'll share them in that next week's podcast episode, if I get any. There's one final thing I want to end on here. Someone commented on YouTube after watching a video, and they said something about their Moto Guzzi Bellagio. And, and I've, I thought... I've never heard of that in my life. So I had to do a a Google search about the Moto Guzzi Bellagio. Let me just see if I can give you a nice tip for a bike you may not have heard of that may be good value. It's a kind of, I think old school V7, but in a almost cruiser, Harley Davidson Sportster style. They were made from 2007 to 2012. And the amount of them for sale on AutoTrader is zero. Zero. Okay. Let's see if I can find any, anywhere. They get four out of four ratings on Motorcycle News. If I go to shopping, I don't think there's, I don't think there's one available. Incredible. Well, let me do one final check and I will end the podcast with this final check. I'll go onto eBay and I'll type Moto Guzzi Bellagio because this would be a lovely little tip off if there's one available in motorcycles. And we've got none. Okay, right, we'll end it on that moot point. Moto Guzzi Bellagio, there are none in the UK. So, well, well, that's helped absolutely no one thank you so much everyone for coming along and now i'm doing it now i'm doing my youtube ending it's ridiculous thank you so much everyone for listening to this week's episode right i'm going to go and have a nice glass of wine and unwind it's been an amazing week i hope you all have a fantastic weekend thank you so much for listening and i will speak to you all in the next one